officials uh, uh, documenting their perception of the Afghan war as it unfolded. Could you speak specifically about the role of General Mark Milley, who is now the current uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? What yes, you General learned Milley from the interviews with him? Yeah, he has a long history in Afghanistan. I believe he was first there in 2003. Uh, he was a colonel then, and ironically, his job at first was to help create an Afghan army and police force, and he was helping to oversee the training to really build this Afghan army from scratch. At the time, in his oral history interview, he's sort of optimistic about this. He says, this will work. Uh, here are some of the challenges, but, you know, the United States can make this happen. And over the years, of course, uh, Milley rose through the ranks. He kept uh, rising up through the chain of command until now he's the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But, you know, it, it's interesting. He has such a long history in Afghanistan, but in public, he was always extremely optimistic. Uh, in 2013, he was the deputy commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, and he would talk about uh, winning and victory and how good the Afghan security forces were. And even as the United States started to withdraw uh, during the Obama administration, Milley was among the generals who kept expressing, uh, you know, complete faith in the Afghan forces. And even though there were clear reports that they weren't doing that well, that they couldn't hold territory, Milley always vouched for them in public. Yet the Afghanistan papers show that Army officials, U.S. Army officials, knew there were just fundamental flaws with the Afghan security forces and just didn't have any faith that they would be able to defend their country. And, and that's the paradox we see again and again in the Afghanistan papers. The generals at the Pentagon kept telling the American people that they were making progress, that they would emerge victorious in the end. And yet, in private, uh, many of these same people were admitting that, you know, they just didn't see a good outcome. Uh, that this war was unwinnable, and that the truth really was being withheld from the U.S. people. Craig Whitlock, we want to thank you for being with us, investigative reporter for The Washington Post, author of the new book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. It's out at the end of the month. And that does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Renee Fels, Mike Park, Dina Gesder, Messiah Reds, Nareen Sheikh, Mary Tarsena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio. Special thanks to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Nareen Sheikh.
WIOX is supported by the following community underwriters. Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York. Now carrying spices, flour, jams, mustards, coffee and tea, organic vegetables and fruits, and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open Wednesday through Saturday, 11 to 5, 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. Hannah Mountain Resort and Country Club with 29 guest rooms, restaurant and bar. Specializing in wedding packages including rehearsal, dinner, ceremony, reception, farewell brunch and accommodations for guests. And golf memberships are available for Hannah's 18-hole championship golf course. Information at hannacountryresort.com or 845-586-4849. West Court Wright Center in East Meredith, presenting a summer of music concerts from the American Popular Songbook to a celebration of Latin America, West African soul, rock, and reggae. West Court Wright Center, located in a historic landmark church, nestled in a secluded bucolic valley on West Court Wright Church Road, in East Meredith. Event calendar and ticket information at West Court Wright Center, westkc.org or 607-278-5454. O'Connell and Aronowitz, attorneys at law since 1925 for legal representation from the routine to the more complex, committed to the fair treatment of all individuals. Family law, wills, trusts, and estate planning, litigation accidents and personal injury, constitutional law, Medicaid planning, elder care and health law, criminal defense, not-for-profit and entity formation, commercial financing, O'Connell and Aronowitz, attorneys at law, 518-462-5601, 518-462-5601, oalaw.com. This is Jim Router, host of The Guitar Show and Nika's Dream here on WIOX Roxbury, inviting you to my farm on Saturday, September 11th, for an afternoon of live music. We've got six bands coming in to celebrate 11 years of community radio in the Catskills. Bring a chair, bring a friend, bring a picnic. Festivities begin at 1 p.m. at the Pleasant View Farm in Halkett Center. For directions and more information, go to WIOXradio.org.
Good afternoon, Catskills. This is Catskill Mountain Dreamer with your host, Nell Thomason Rebo. And I have with me today a real treat. And it's a voice well known at WIOX and beyond. Um, it's Kent Garrett and Jean Ellsworth, the co-authors of The Last Negroes at Harvard, the class of 1963, and the 18 young men who changed Harvard forever. Hello. Hey, hi, how are you? Nice to hear you. Yes, likewise. I am thrilled to have you as my guest today. And Jean. Hello, Hello. Jean. <laughs> hi. So, um... What a day it turns out to be. It was quite a trip, a trip today to get to the radio station. Yeah. So. <laughs> so lots and lots of rain, showers. So, but I'm here and uh, really happy to talk to you about, um, about this book that you both uh, um, yeah. birthed Great. together. <laughs> yes. Great. So, um, for for those who are not so familiar with you, can you both uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, yeah, I'll start. I I uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in the city, and uh, went to public high schools and uh, went to uh, boys' high. From there, I went to Harvard and. Spent four years there from 59 to 1963, and when we were there, I was one of 18 black 
Negro, as we, we were called back then, at Harvard. We were the largest number ever admitted uh, up to that date. And I spent my career mostly in uh, TV news. I spent, uh, I was a producer for Black Journal, which was one of the, which was the first network uh, black TV show, a news, news broadcast. It was a news magazine broadcast that came on, uh, I think, about once a month. And I did that for three or four years. Then I went to uh, CBS Evening News, where I did, started out doing documentaries and then worked for CBS Evening News, Dan Rather, for about 10 years. And from there I went to NBC News, where I worked for uh, Brokaw for 10 years. And then I got tired of it, uh, you know, sort of the city and all that, and came up to upstate to Delhi, where I farmed, became a dairy farmer for 10 years. Up until about 2007, then I went back into doing documentaries and moved to Roxbury, and here I am. Wow! So, and were you an organic dairy farmer? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. I was one of the first organic farmers in in Delaware County, and wow. uh, yeah, it was back in the day when. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure what the price structure is now, but it, but at that time. The uh, organic milk was, you, you were paid about twice as much for organic milk as you were for regular milk. Yeah. So you could have a much smaller herd and uh, make the same amount of money, you know, as the people with a larger herd. Yeah. That's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think the price structure, it depends where you, where you go, you know, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, um, wow, that's... That's really amazing, uh, quite the switch going from uh, being a newscaster to and producer to farming. That's hard work. Right. It is. <laughs> it's, it's both hard work, actually, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, very different. So, um, and Jean, um, can you tell us about yourself? I understand you're a historian. And former teacher. Um, yes, yes. I grew up in New Jersey, um, went to Rutgers, and um, eventually got a teaching degree. I taught in elementary school, and then I went back to get my Ph.D., which I did at University of Buffalo. And I worked for, I think, 15 years at, in the SUNY system teaching teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, my specific field... Um, in my PhD was history of education in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so um, as many, many people want to know, well, how did you two meet? And we met on an Internet dating service in 2000. I'm pretty sure it was seven or yeah, seven. seven. And um, I, I love telling the story because it's absolutely true. And people get a kick out of it. But <laughs> on our first, on our very first date, um, Kent told me he had this idea to get in touch with all his black uh, black classmates from the class of '63, and possibly just because of my background, I thought this is a great idea. What a wonderful project! And um, again, as I get a kick out of saying. I wasn't sure we'd have another date, but I was—I knew we'd have a great project there. And we did have another date, and as you say, 
Yes, that's our only child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it started out as a video project. You know, we uh, traveled around the country to uh, interview the classmates. They were about, I think, about eight different cities, and one guy was in uh, in, uh, in Austria. Another guy was in uh, St. Thomas. And uh, we put together a... I guess we call it a trailer, but a, a, a sort of a long trailer that we were going to use to uh, raise money for a larger documentary. Longer documentary. Yeah. Uh, and we put it aside for a while, and then and we weren't very good at money raising money. And I think the market, you know, the foundation market was not that great then. And so we put it away for a while and got back to it and decided that it would make good sense as a book. And we found an agent, and uh, it took us about a year to do a proposal and then about two years to do the book. So I think all together was about a 10-year project. Wow, yeah. That is a a good chunk of time in in which you put together an amazing historic piece of work. So, um... Can you tell us a bit about um, the just being on the road together? What was that like? And and finding out where you know the the living situations of your classmates. And... Well, it was it was uh, it was great. I mean, I think initially, you know, a lot of people when you say you're doing a book like that, you think it was going to be a book about sort of rags to riches, you know, a bunch of uh, poor kids that they pull out of the ghetto and the kids become, you know, all stars or whatever. But it really turned out to be not that kind of story. I mean, it was more uh, subtle, and, and I think Harvard was uh, more subtle in terms of the people that it picked in the class, you know, from all kinds of different uh, Backgrounds politically and socioeconomically, there were a bunch of some rich, richer uh, black kids, and I think I was probably the only real rags to riches story in the sense that my dad was a uh, you know New York City subway motorman, mm-hmm. and I was a kid go to college, and then that sort of thing. But you ask about how we did out on the road. It was it was great, really. I mean, the car is a good place to work out ideas and, you know, just keep keep talking because it was, I think, one of the most difficult things about the book was the fact that after doing even this first, the first round of interviews, we had, you know, the better part of 18 life stories. And, and what do you do with that? I mean, it would have, if I, if we, you know, really written written up all those things, it would be like a thousand-page book, and nobody would want to read it. So it took a long time to sort of see what it was really about. And we did a lot of that in the car. Yeah. We have a a little apartment down in uh, Mexico, in Chiapas, which is uh, a, a mountain town, up in a mountain town called San Cristobal de las Casas, and it's about a, uh, we drive there, and uh, it's three hours driving 
three days driving in the States and then two days driving in Mexico. And so we did a lot of uh, work in the car, and that's where we came up with the title of the book while we were on our little road in Mexico. Yeah. Um, so how did that come about? Sure, I'll, t I'll tell you because we we um, because I was digging into a lot of old documents, um, you know, things from the forties, fifties, even before. You know, you don't you find the word Negro coming up over and over and over. And while at in the beginning when we started the project, we were saying, oh they're blacks, you know, there were th this many blacks in his class. And, and we even had a working title of the Harvard Black 17. And, but more and more, we, I, there was just this moment, I think, where we came to see that, that it, it was anachronistic in, 19, in the 1950s when these guys were getting ready to go off to Harvard and starting at Harvard to use the word black. And, and yet, uh, by the time they came out of Harvard, people were starting to say it. Malcolm X was saying it. And uh, James Baldwin was saying it. So it just, I don't know, it was our lucky moment when we thought the last few days at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, that is quite the catching title. Brilliant. So, um, as far as um, can you can you give us um, a favorite occurrence? Well, I'm sure you have many favorites, and it might be hard mm -hmm. to pick. But is there a favorite occurrence while you a surprise kind of situation? Well, uh, yeah, I mean there are a bunch. I mean, yeah. <laughs> as, as Jean said, we first started off with. Uh, the title, the Harvard uh, Harvard uh, 17, or Black 17, I think we were going to call it. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had known, again, there were 18 of us, and I had known maybe five or six and maybe stayed in touch with the two or three over the years. And I, you know, didn't know some of them. And they, when we were back, you know, 50 years earlier, they put out a, they put out a thing called a freshman or a register, a freshman Harvard, kind of a yearbook, pictures of all the freshmen, little black and white photos that are kind of passport size. And I sort of used some of that, those photos, to pick out who the black guys were, you know, in the sense that, you know, it was a book of 1,500 people in the class and uh, 18 of us. So in this book, you could really pick out the black folks. And I picked them out and uh, got their names and started to work on the project and all that. And then we were, there's a class, a sort of newsletter that goes out every three months or so that one of the guys puts out called Jottings. And we decided to put a little, not an ad, but a little note in there saying that we were looking, we were doing the book and we were looking for anecdotes and stories and history. Of, of guys who had known some of the black guys in our class and let us know. And so we got a note back, an email back from a guy saying that, hey, you know, there are really a or maybe, no, he said, I think there were 19 of you. And I said, holy smokes, we, you know, mm -hmm. looks like we missed somebody. Yeah. And I sort of, sort of 
started to panic. And I said, and he gave me the name of, so I went back to the freshman book and started looking again and picked out uh, three or four guys that sort of looked black. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if they were not. So, you know, being a, uh, you know, intrepid reporter, I decided I'd have to make the ultimate call and call these guys and ask them if they were black, which was uh, very funny and very uh, weird call. Yeah. And so once I called, I called and he said, uh, uh, Oops, what happened there? Can you still hear me, Ken? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. All right. We have a little uh, technical situation going on with a dropped call. So, I'll play some music and get them back on. Hey. Hello. Was that me or you? (laughs) That definitely was not me. (laughs) I don't know why that happened. Well, I'm glad you're back. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was one of the funny things that that, that, that learned that I'd made a mistake in terms of uh, who, you know, how many blacks there were in the class. And what else we have? Uh, well, I don't know if it counts as a big surprise, but I think we were both interested in the question of whether Harvard had done this on purpose, whether it might just be an early form of affirmative action and you know little by little we found out that that it was and you know I guess there's always a there's always a lot of wondering as you work on a project like that well in in our case is Harvard going to come out to be the hero or the bad guy you know because and of course it it wasn't clearly one or the other but with regard to this uh, as I say, early form of affirmative action, they were they were ahead of their their tribe, if you will. They were ahead of people that they always want to get ahead of, which is Yale and Princeton. Yeah. As far as this, you know, this decision to uh, to recruit blacks specifically. Great. Yeah. Um. All right. So, and what was the most um, was there was there a moment there? Um, I'm thinking of um, when you visited Bobby. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean that was uh, that was uh, an interesting part. I mean, in the sense that we part of the thing was the book was to find out how everybody had turned out and what they had done in their lives and if they had turned out uh, happy or whatever. Most of the people, 18, did graduate, except for a few, except for one, actually. And then Bobby was the one who, Bobby did, was the one who was, uh, you know, I guess in a way, least successful, you call it. Well, by the time we encountered yeah. I think he'd had his ups and downs in life, but by the time we encountered him, his health was poor. 
And I don't think he had, you know, possibly because of his health problems and possibly some other problems. We weren't exactly sure where he was living. Um, and it, you know, eventually we found out he was living with his sister. And by that time, his health was very poor. Um, but what a wonderfully fun, interesting, uh, and a brilliant man. Right. He had some bumps in the road, particularly when we met up with him. And the thing about him is that we found out, you know, we found out that he was gay. And that, uh, you know, he had, he told us stories uh, just about the horror. Not, I don't know if it's, the word is horror, but the, the whole anxiety of having to go through, you know, four years of Harvard and not to keep that suppressed. I mean, not, yeah. not come not mm -hmm. uh, So he, he, he talked about that as being uh, very, very difficult. And, well, I think uh, the problem, and we haven't talked about this at length, but both black and gay. Yeah. It was a it was a rough time in that regard. Although out off campus, he seemed to have had a a a, a nice social life in a lot of ways. Right. Maybe more than some of you other guys. But right. um, uh, you know, as I read more about it, there's a wonderful book. The name, of course, escapes me at the moment about being gay at Harvard through the years. And there was there was definitely a, you know a, a gay subculture. Um, that sort of just flew under the radar, probably well known by the masters there. But I get, I think as long as you kept it quiet and, you know, kept your head down, you could, you know, you weren't, weren't persecuted on a daily basis or thrown out of the college, which did happen in the 1920s. Yeah. So it's kind of like living in two different worlds. Right. I mean, especially because he was from the South too, yeah. which was, which was probably more, you know, anti-gay than in other areas of the country. I think his earlier life, before before college, yeah. he did say was kind of a horror. It was right, very right. Much more difficult. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So and so, you found out, uh, Kent, that there was a whole world that had been hidden from you and most everyone else that was not gay at Harvard. Yeah, you had no idea. Yeah, yeah, none of us had any idea, really. <laughs> not only about Bobby, but I, I remember when I was reading the book I mentioned, and I said things to Kent, he said, nope, I had no idea. Yeah, no idea. And the funny thing about it is that we found out in... Uh, in, 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 in Mexico, in Mexico, we were uh, there was a classmate who had Harvard had set up um, years ago, I guess a kind of a, uh, a research research station, station in in Chiapas, in in the uh, you know in, in Mexico. And Chiapas, where we are, is down about an hour and a half from uh, Guatemala, and it's a very high mountain town, and it's very Mayan, so they were. Harvard was studying the Mayans and that sort of thing. And one of our classmates had been down there and taken part in the study, and he wrote a novel or book about uh, Chiapas. And he came down, he was coming down to you know, get a, an award for his book in the town of uh, San Cristobal de los Casas. And we happened to be there, so we met him and his partner for dinner. His husband, yeah. 
yeah, so A, you found out that he had a husband. I mean, we assumed that he, when he said that we would meet for dinner that he would have a wife, but he had a husband. That was a bit of a shock. And then secondly, in, in sort of casual conversation, uh, how did it go? I can't remember exactly what he said, but I believe um, that it was uh, his husband who turned to me and said, oh, Bobby was in love with that guy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, that's... Yeah, and, then, and that was, you know, they had remained friends all these yeah. years uh, through their many, you know. And then for me, I mean, we had written so much of the book so far, and okay. uh, the question was how do we deal with it? And, uh, you know, how is Bobby going to – I have to obviously go back and interview him again. Because up until that point, we had spoken to Bobby a number of times, right. but he had not yet chosen to, to yeah. mention that yeah. to us. So we had a conversation, and I sort of said something like, well, Bobby, you know, uh, as we've been writing this book, blah, 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 the whole issue of uh, homosexuality has come up uh, in the parts of the, you know, in our research or something like that. And I said, how do you feel about it? And he came around and said, well, I feel great. I'm gay, you know. And uh, <laughs> after he said that, it was fine. I mean, we worked out. worked very, very well. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, still a little bit you know, of, of work left before it's a non-issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. exactly. And, an interesting thing with the book just came up a couple of days ago. Um, one of Another one of the black classmates passed away in July, and mm-hmm. um, his widow had sent us a notice and, and linked us to the um, a video of the service. And then she just emailed Kent today asking if we still had the footage of her husband that we had shot 10 years ago talking about his life. And oh. we do. So yeah. we are going to be able to send it to her. That's really wonderful. Really nice. I'm so, that's so gratifying. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about this guy, this character, well, this, this classmate of mine is that he's the one he felt that he told us that he was off the record that he'd been involved in, the, you know, CIA and. Uh, yeah, he did. <coughs> wow. We were never able to really no. prove that. I mean, so. No. Interesting. Very, yeah, and mm. really not surprising. No, that that, that's at true, least right. one of you right. would be. <laughs> right, right. Well, I kept thinking that this guy. He wore a lot of three-piece suits, so that uh, <laughs> that was the uh, clue. Uh huh. Okay. Indeed, very interesting. So, um, can you um, tell us a little bit about what life was like for you uh, adjusting at Harvard? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was uh, a difficult adjustment. The first year, especially. First off, academically, uh, as I said, there were about fifteen hundred or thirteen hundred in, in the class, eleven hundred in the class, and there were only eighteen of us. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of, in many ways, we were seen as curiosities. Yeah. Uh, many, many people in the class had never seen or never, or never at least talked, or had a serious conversation with anybody that was uh, black. And then, secondly, academically. Um, I think a large percentage, I think at that time more than 50% of the class had gone to these prep schools, 
And in the prep schools, they really, the way they were taught and the way they were taught to write, uh, they had had a lot of the uh, first-year Harvard freshman courses already, and they sort of knew how to think in that Harvard kind of way. And mm-hmm. so it took a while to catch up. I mean, I, I, the first year was really a struggle academically, uh, and I think it took not until the second year or so did the public school guys catch up with the uh, prep school guys in terms of the academics. That was difficult. And the other thing was, in terms of racially, I had a, uh, just due to bad timing, I guess you could say, you know, I had to work. I had some scholarship, but I I did have to work, and I ended up uh, working on the dorm crew, which was one of these uh, basic crews where you clean bathrooms of of, of rooms in different dorms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not a particularly racially sensitive job except for me except for me was you know there are about maybe 80 of us and you know most of them are white and all that and don't think very much about it but for me i mean it was kind of uh, ironic in that uh you know here i am at harvard doing this menial you know kind of work and uh you know that didn't sit very well with me and made it psychologically difficult you know yeah. to tap on a room door and say you know, pardon me, can I clean your room, clean your bathroom, and uh, do you need any more toilet paper, that sort of thing. Yeah. Was it, and I only, did, I only did it for the first, for the first year, whereas there were other, another black guy in the class did it for a year, and he went on to become a manager in the dorm crew business, you know, up there at Harvard. So, mm-hmm. it, it, so it obviously affected him differently than it affected me. Exactly, yeah. First year difficult. Well, yeah, it's a, on top of all the other emotional um, and mental pressures. Right. Yeah. Trying to fit in. Right. Um, you know, and that uh, I can't even imagine. Because you were definitely a very visible minority. Right. Yeah. So, so what was it like uh, at lunchtime? Lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, well, the way it was set up, there was a uh, we we and the way it set up at Harvard in the first year, everybody lives in the Harvard yard. All the freshmen do anyway. In Harvard yard is about eight or nine different buildings, you know, around a yard, and. Uh, each building is sort of named after a Brahmin New England family or a businessman or a financier or someone who gave money to the school. But anyway, we would, it turned out that we were, again, let me just say that there were no, there were no black faculty, no black teachers, no black uh, studies courses. Uh, and so we, as a, group tended to eat together and, and tended to, we, we were, uh, I guess you would say set up the first black table there. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, there was a lot of curiosity about what's it like to be a black or what's it like to be a Negro. And after a while, 
you kind of get tired of that, and at least I did anyway. And, uh, sure. Yeah. You know, but so we, but so the, the the black table became an area of sort of comfort where you could, uh, you know, you didn't have to speak the king's English or whatever that English was, yeah. and uh, you know, you could find out what's happening in the black community, that sort of thing. Yeah, I can imagine. So, um, and what was it like to, did you even ever go out? Did you have any kind of social life outside of college? Oh, yeah. I mean, we would go, I mean, it wasn't, not particularly great, but, uh, I mean, I think the attitude at Harvard was to try and keep the uh, sexes apart as best they could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we, you know, we would go to these mixers sometimes, which were really, you know, a drag. But there was a significant, pretty, pretty lively black community at, at, in Boston. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of partying there, and I was in a, you know, a fraternity and that sort of thing. So, college. It was a, it's a non-college fraternity, citywide mm-hmm. fraternity. So I did a lot of partying there, and that was that was sort of great. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, so it wasn't uh, totally bad. Yeah, you need your outlets, for sure, <clears throat> with all those additional pressures. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, um, well, thank you for, for telling me a little bit more and telling the listener more about yeah. What, what it was like for you to uh, to be at Harvard and yeah. um, so what is the most significant um, changes you think occurred due to the 18 of well, you I mean, that were there? I think we, yeah, I think we, I, I think two things. One, I think we really, you know, since there were 18 of us, before we got there, Harvard would admit two or three, maybe four, but mainly two or three blacks or Negroes in the classes uh, every year. And the idea was that the Negro would come there, he would take courses and uh, just get out of Cambridge as soon as it was finished. But the fact that there were 18 of us meant that we had some power as a group. I mean, again, there was a group of blacks who would sit at this black table in the dining hall, uh, we, we, we had some political power as a group, and uh, we decided to s- set up a, uh, a black or a student organization for only blacks. And uh, I think that was one of our legacies that we left. I mean, it was very difficult to set it up, uh, yeah. to get it recognized in the sense that uh, Harvard administration felt that it was represented really uh reverse discrimination and because we had in our charter uh, that it would be an organization uh, open only to uh, blacks or people of African and African-American heritage. And Harvard, the controversy was that Harvard felt that that was discrimination and they said that if you, you could set up the organization that you'd have to take that clause out and we didn't particularly want to do that because at that time, Harvard had a lot of these uh, clubs called final clubs, which were sort of dining clubs and were uh, clubs that discriminated, discriminated.
discriminated against <laughs> against blacks, against Jews. They discriminated against new money. Yeah. It was clubs that, like, the Rockefellers were in and the Rothschilds yeah. and the Kennedys and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have in their charter or, or written down anywhere that they were discriminating, but they were doing it anyway, and we decided we didn't want to do that. So it took us a while to get that going, but it did eventually, after we left, uh, get established, and that was one of our legacies. And uh, I mean, the other thing that that was that, that came up that's interesting is that we're thinking that we're probably going to work on a starting research anyway on another book about one of our classmates, a guy named uh, Lowell Davidson, who was a really brilliant uh, uh, biochemist and a, and a jazz kind of freeform jazz musician. And, and an athlete. And an athlete, yeah. He was a track guy, too. Mm. He was a protege of Lynette Coleman. And he died uh, at age 46 in 1990. But he had a really interesting life and crazy life. And uh, we're going to try and do a book about him. Uh, so I mean, that's, the, that's the thing that we're working on right now. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I remember he was mentioned in your book. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Um, that is wonderful that actually a whole story will will actually yeah. result from that, an entire book. Yeah. Um, and who knows, that may be filmed. Yeah, really. Yeah. It would make right. a great movie. Yeah, it would. would. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, although, no, we did sell the book to a production company. You did. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, they took an option on it about a year ago, and yeah. we just heard maybe two, three weeks ago that they have found a writer to write a pitch or, the, I guess, a sample script. So who knows? Oh, right. Yeah. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> of course, we'll put, we'll put you in the book as well. <laughs> you have to figure out who, wants to, who do you want to play yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm... Um, I'm flattered, but I'm not sure <laughs> that you need to do that. <laughs> um, well, I do thank you both very much for being oh, my you. guests today. And, uh, it's a pleasure. To, thank you. To show the WIX community and beyond a little bit more about who you are. Thank um, you. I understand that both of you are not just uh, working partners, but you are also partners in life now. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's quite beautiful. Um, so I, I wish you um, all the love in the world together. I know you have it already. I don't need to wish it for you. And just uh, no, may, may you enjoy it uh, for okay. a long time to come. All right. Thank you, Thank you Nell. And good luck on uh, writing your next book okay. and the next Thank adventure. Yep. Yes. Thank you. All right. See ya. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And that was Moroccan Soul by Moroccan Spirit. And uh, to begin, I always play Rotary Phone by Maura Smiley. And today's session was with Kent Garrett and Jean Ellsworth, the authors of The Last Negroes at Harvard, the class of 1963, and the 18 young men who changed Harvard forever. We have a ways to go before we uh, have uh, more of an, um, more of a rapport with people with different backgrounds um, and how we all are by nature. Um, it is my experience that we really do thrive um, with diversity rather than segregation, that it never works out very well for anyone um, and I'm thankfully not the only one who thinks that way um, I was reminded um, when Kent was talking about uh, the way they were being uh, looked at um, by people who had never seen black people before in their lives um, and yeah my husband has even though he's uh, not uh, technically black. Um, he's, he was born in Morocco, and uh, in, in French they were called the, the pied noir, the black foot. Um, he had the black curly hair and olive skin. Um, and um, when he moved from Morocco to Long Island, he was asked, from time to time, he was asked if uh, they were living in trees in Africa, um, like monkeys. That really did happen. Um, so a lot has thankfully changed in the meantime. And um, before I forget to mention um, another segregation issue, um, teachersforchoice.org is calling New York Unions for Choice, protesting the Biden, Cuomo, de Blasio's medical mandates, vaccine choice, yes, mandates, no. Come to City Hall Wednesday, August 25 at 4 p.m. to support the largest protest of rank-and-file union members in New York City history. Um, and it says we will be protesting federal, state, and city mandates that are moving in the direction of forced vaccination to keep our jobs. Once a COVID vaccine is fully FDA approved, will they still allow us to test instead of getting vaccinated, or will they 100% force the vaccine on all organized labor? Firefighters, teachers, nurses, healthcare workers, EMTs, EMS, police, detectives, sanitation, postal workers, federal workers, and more. We need you all. Bring signs promoting your local unions. So that is from teachersforchoice.org. And then I have the weather forecast for you. Um, for today, showers are likely. And this is, by the way, um, WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, and at 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi, uh, on smart devices through the Radio FM app, and everywhere at WIOXradio.org, where it's easy to donate. 
So um, showers for today are likely with thunderstorms also possible after 3 p.m. Cloudy with a high near 74. South wind um, 5 to 7 miles becoming west in the afternoon. Chance of precipitation is 70%. New rainfall amounts of less than a tenth of an inch except higher amounts possible in thunderstorms. Tonight, chance of showers and thunderstorms cloudy with a low around 63. Northwest wind 5 to 7 miles per hour becoming calm after midnight. Chance of precipitation is 40%. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch except higher amounts possible in thunderstorms. Friday, a chance of showers mainly after 3 p.m. Mostly cloudy with a high near 81. Calm and becoming northwest around 6 miles per hour in the afternoon. Chance of precipitation is 30%. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch possible. Tomorrow night, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, mostly cloudy, with a low around 